From the LA Times studios, I'm Mary McNamara, Assistant Managing Editor of Arts and Entertainment at the Los Angeles Times, and this is The Real, your source for all things entertainment. For today's pod, I'm joined by several of my esteemed colleagues to discuss female directors in television. Please introduce yourselves, everybody. Hi, I'm Yvonne Villarreal, and I cover television. And I'm Lorraine Ali, and I'm the television critic. Um, and I'm Meredith Blake, and I also write about TV. Meredith Blake, live from New York. Okay, so uh, recently we had a what I thought was a very stunning package on uh, female directors in television. Now, we've been talking about female directors in film for quite a while now, i.e. there aren't any or there are like three. Uh, but meanwhile, the boom in television has sort of aided a rise in female directors. And before we get started, let's just take a minute to listen to Jennifer Lynch, who's one of the Jessica Jones directors we talked about discussing this moment in television for women. It's an exciting time in television for women in particular because people are actually acknowledging that there are women in television. (laughs) There always have been women in television. Um, I think I've always just called them directors or producers or writers. But I think that right now there's, there's an awareness that not only can we do the job, but that we've always been able to do the job. We just haven't been allowed to. I think that's a great beginning statement for this discussion. Women are now being allowed to do or given a way to do things that they've always been good at doing, which is directing. So Meredith and Yvonne, can you talk a little bit about this recent uh, package you put together about how the project came into being and, uh, you know, the journey and, and who, you know, who you spoke with and what you discovered? Well, I think it started last year with a story that I wrote uh, looking at this idea of the female gaze in television and kind of just looking at the rise of a lot of different um, female showrunners who were bringing kind of a distinctly or maybe what was distinctly a female perspective to TV. And in the process of that, it sort of emerged that a lot of these shows that I was writing about, shows like Transparent and Handmaid's Tale and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend were... um, also largely directed by women, and, and, you know, it was very much a conscientious choice made by the showrunners and creators to to bring more women into television. And then um, and then I just sort of started to see it every, I mean, not actually everywhere, but in a lot of places. You know, Ava DuVernay has done it twice on Clean Sugar, and then Jessica Jones announced they were going to do it for season two, and then HBO had The Deuce, which was 50% women with a pilot directed by a woman, and it just kind of seemed to be everywhere, and it seemed like it, it was kind of the next step in this evolution of female storytelling on TV. Yeah, and it felt like anecdotally we were seeing a lot of stuff where it seemed like there was a big shift happening, but then we would also see the numbers, and it wasn't quite where it needed to be either. And then we started hearing about initiatives. And then I guess I guess it was last summer NBC announced they were going to do an initiative for female directors if for their on their drama shows spearheaded by Jennifer Salke and then uh, Leslie Lincoln Glatter and it just seemed like it, this was also happening at a time when I think directing and television has always been kind of seen as secondary or not as exciting. Uh, that also is changing. So I think it was kind of those things in, in tandem that made us want to do the package. Well, I think it's really interesting because I was I was thinking back to when, you know, Shonda Rhimes uh, started Grey's Anatomy and the idea that her writer's room was half female was, that was news. I mean, and it was the only one in town that was like that. And so you are seeing television and she is one of the women that has like brought in uh, not just racial diversity in casting, but also I think 
diversity in directing as well. And so you do see these individuals who sort of have made it part of their mission to do that. You also see, you know, television, because there is so much television, there are more opportunities but we're also, I mean, there's almost like a competition while film is getting battered about whether it's Oscar So White or the lack of female directors. Television is meanwhile like sort of going, look, we have more diversity. We have more female directors. Do you think that there is like a consciousness just among the executives, among studios, that this is a way that television can separate itself? And it's not just prestige, but we're also addressing social issues. The awareness level is there because there are a handful of people that are really making an effort and you don't want to be the one that's really not making an effort. And so there's this sort of push to, okay, I have to, we have to do better. And with FX, it took them seeing a report in Variety about the statistics. And it's kind of like, do you want to be the one that's really not Mm -hmm. doing something about this? But it is still like, for all the people that are making an effort, there's still far more that are not. And that's the thing. It's how do we get everyone to want this? Because it is easier to go with what you know. And so to push against that, that going with something new is not bad. Getting a different, fresh perspective is not bad. Well, I think also the success of shows is the barometer, right? Because if you're looking at you know, a show like The Deuce, or you're looking at Jessica Jones, or Uh shows that are critically acclaimed that are also getting good ratings. Those are shows by women, directed by women, about women. And it's not as if we're feeding people their vegetables. We're giving them actually something that they want. Mm -hmm. So I think that in itself is a driver. But also to the point of, you know, TV and film, TV was always kind of looked at as like, Well, it's the lesser art form. And it's really interesting how that has flipped. And I do think it's lighting a fire under film's back end. (laughs) (laughs) The collective butt of film. Yes. We need to take a quick break, so we'll be right back. Lights. Camera. Assassin. From executive producers Bill Hader and Silicon Valley's Alec Berg, the new HBO comedy Barry stars Hader as a hitman who discovers a new passion for acting while on the job in Los Angeles. Check out the series premiere March 25th at 10.30 p.m. Well, it's interesting because one of the, you know, one of the factors in the rise of the golden age of television or whatever, are we up to platinum now or peak TV, (laughs) whatever we're calling it these days, One of the first things was that women stars started coming from film to television because they couldn't get the roles in television. And so not only did you have renewed attention to certain shows, but you also had writers going, oh, well, I've got Glenn Close. So, you know, this has got to be something that's good. And it was. Uh, Damages uh, still available on FX. (laughs) I would recommend if you haven't seen it, do watch it. But I also feel like so is that, you know, happening with directors where, you know, one of the things that has been sort of the explanation of why there are no female directors is, well, the female, you know, they don't have the experience. We can't trust them with a a big film because they don't have the experience. Did the women that you talked to see, you know, directing these television shows, some of which are just as good in every level as any major motion picture, do they see that as a like sort of a way to get the experience that would then take them to film? Or are they like, I don't need film. I'm just going to do this and we're going to make this great. 
I think for a lot of women, TV, a lot of women who were, you know, shut out of kind of the studio film business for whatever reason or just felt frustrated by it, um, TV was just a way to keep working and to keep working at a level where often, you know, say you come, someone who came up in like the indie world, you're working fast, you're working on low budgets, you're making movies really quickly. Um, those are all skills that translate really well to television, but you might have a much nicer budget, like a cable drama, a one-hour cable drama, and you get better toys, you get to work with top-level cast and crew. You're not kind of flying by the seat of your pants making an indie drama for, you know, a million bucks or something. So I think you, you see a lot of that, and that's something that I started noticing, you know, just looking at the credits of, of various TV shows that I was watching. You'd see all of these directors who'd been kind of indie darlings, you know, made a Sundance movie, maybe won some Oscars, and then just kind of disappeared from the feature film world. You know, Kimberly Pierce, Karin Kusama being two big examples. I spoke to both of them for my story. And they both said the same thing, that, you know, they both made a couple of feature films in the studio world and just felt kind of frustrated by the opportunities out there. And they felt that as, as women filmmakers, it was much harder. The standard of success was much higher. And, you know, the scrutiny was just a lot more intense. And they've since kind of thrived in TV. And, you know, it's something that keeps you busy. You can direct many hours of television a year <laughs> as opposed to trying to work for two or three years to get a feature off the ground. So I think in some ways, it, you know, TV used to be seen as less, but I think by and large people see it as equal in terms of the storytelling. But it's still not an easy break-in. Like, you, it's still, you're you're pushing up against this must-have experience loop. Like, if you don't have an episode in your resume, it's really hard to break in. And a lot of women talked about that, the meetings that they took and hearing yeses and along the way. And then once it got to needing that final yes, oh, you've never directed an episode before? Uh, we don't want to be your first. Like, that that's something that you still face in TV. And it really takes someone taking a chance and just saying, how else are you going to get experience unless I do something? That's how Gail Mancuso broke in on Roseanne. It took a spot where one of the male directors for the season had to leave to do a pilot. And she just went up to Roseanne and was like, I want to do this. And Roseanne said yes. And then she directed and Roseanne had her direct the next season. So it's, it's someone taking that chance. Which it shouldn't be viewed as a chance either. Why is it? Is it different for male directors? I mean, is it? Are they just sort of trusted implicitly more? You know, I mean, because we we all start without having directed anything. <laughs> I still have not directed anything. So, I mean, what? how does <laughs> how do people how do men make that transition? And how is it different? It's who you know, and we talked about this earlier. Oh, right. People seeing themselves in right. the people they're hiring, and oftentimes the people making the hires are white men, and so they hire more of that. You know, but I thought you brought up a really interesting point in that piece, was that if there's a male director and he does a poor job on something, it's the idea like, well, he did a bad job on it, you know, we'll give him a second or a third mm -hmm. chance. But if it's a female director, and this is coming from the directors you spoke to, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, yeah, we took a chance on a female director and that didn't work out very exactly. well. The, a lot of the women talked about because there's so few of them in the market, they're often lumped in together. And so if they'll go on a set and they're like, they'll be with the crew and someone will say, oh, we hired a woman once. It didn't work out. <laughs> right. or, we hired a woman once and it was it was great. And so it's it sort of speaks to how every woman director is going to be. And they talked about those frustrations. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you measuring me against that one person? But, you know, what is so amazing about this is that, 
you know, when we're talking about bringing more women in or more people of color, it does sound like, okay, checking off boxes for diversity. And that's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. As we were talking about earlier, Mary, this it's about stories. It's about bringing stories to viewers that they want to see. And the idea that uh, somehow women are going to be bringing in something that's not quite as... I mean, all you have to do is look at... The Handmaid's Tale. All you have to do is look at Harlots with something else that Mm -hmm. came out on Hulu. Let's take The Deuce, which was about the sex trade in New York in the 70s, 60s, 70s. You've seen that a lot, right? You've seen that kind of thing in films a lot. But from the female gaze, it's a totally different thing. And the same with Harlots about sex workers in 17th or 18th century London. Mm -hmm. When it comes from women, it looks a lot different. And people respond to that. It is a new story. It is a different side of the story. And we need fresh stories out there. God knows that. TV, I feel like, is offering that. Film, not as much right now. I think that that's true. And let's let's talk about for for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the terminology, the female gaze, Meredith, which you wrote about, which you've written about, Lorraine, you know, is an answer to the male gaze, which was, you know, something a term that was coined about how male directors look at women in their films. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Meredith? Oh, gosh, yeah. This is, I'm, I'm having flashbacks of undergrad right now, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was amazed when your story came out. So many people said to me, but I don't know what the male gaze is. And I'm like, okay, we'll just go to the movies, and then you'll know. <laughs> to get totally nerdy about it, it's, you know, it's like basically this Freudian film theory about... Basically, the idea is that the camera takes the view in, in most mainstream films, and even in most mainstream kind of Western art, the point of view is that of a white heterosexual male. And so in classic films, it means that the camera is ogling the woman, that women are often portrayed as, you know, objects to be conquered, to be seduced, whatever it is, that they're sort of peripheral to the story and that the way the camera frames them and looks at them is generally kind of sexualized. The female gaze is kind of, you know, is something that people have theorized about, about what it might, what, what might that actually mean? Ogling men with a camera <laughs> to mean something different. And so uh, the story that I looked at last year kind of examined what, what it might mean, looking at all these different shows that dealt with women that were written by women, about women, and largely directed by women, and how these shows were dealing with these issues. And, you know, it's something that people have looked for in cinema for a long time, maybe successfully you know, it's popped up here and there in a few films, but it seems to be something that's happening in TV if, if you believe that women fundamentally tell stories in a different way than men, which is up for debate. <laughs> well, I think, again, it's sort of what Lorraine was saying. It's like bringing in multiple viewpoints and some women tell stories easily identifiable as differently than men. It's to do the binary thing, I think, is to take a step back from where we are in the culture in many ways. But you mentioned the show Harlots, and that was, and I can't remember when you were writing the female gaze piece, Meredith, but that was the show that really was, to me, like the epitome of what the female gaze was. Because here is a show about prostitutes, and is it Victorian England? Yeah, I, I think it was, uh, I want to oh, say no, like I think seven. it was like seven. 1800, early 1800s? Yeah, early 1800s, yeah. Uh, Anyway, but it's like, it's something you have seen a million times, particularly on HBO. It's it's as if you took the notion of, you know, sex position, which is like, you know, when we've had many articles about how on certain shows, many scenes take place in brothels that do not need to take place in brothels, just so you can have naked women writhing around in the background. So this is actually about a brothel. And I remember the first sex scene in it, I was just watching it and going, 
what? This is so, it's like, it's not erotic. I don't feel like this woman is being used. I don't feel like this is disturbing. I feel like I'm watching a workplace. Yeah, you know, it was a that business is, transaction. Exactly. Right. And I mean, it took me like, I don't know, 20 minutes to sort of go, is it me? Is it that? Is it, you know, and just sort of, and that permeated the whole show, which had its soap operatic elements and bodice-busting elements and the sloppy streets of, you know, London or whatever. But it really was a kind of a revelation. Yeah, it was. And, it, you know, there's other examples like Jessica Jones, the, the second season dropped recently on Netflix. And there was just lines in that that were so like you wouldn't have heard these lines if the director had been a man. There was one point when she has an adversary who's trying to get her business from her. And he says something to her to the effect he's a jockey type guy. And he says something to her, something like, you know, I never take no for an answer. Okay, and in a film, you know, I'm in, and that would have been like, that's a manly thing to say. And she answers him and saying, how very rapey of you. (laughs) And I thought, wow. And then there was another scene where she was trying to uh, have a diversion, the super of her building, into her apartment. So she flushed a bunch of tampons down the toilet to clog it up. So the super comes in. He comes in, he says, what happened? And she said, yeah, it's been a really heavy flow this month. And I thought that would not have happened before. And it's even little details like that. It's not even necessarily the entire narrative, but it makes a difference. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk more about Jessica Jones and other female-centric shows, but we need to take a quick break. So uh, we'll be right back. Lights. Camera. Assassin. From executive producers Bill Hader and Silicon Valley's Alec Berg, the new HBO comedy Barry centers on a depressed hitman who discovers a new passion for acting while on a job in Los Angeles. Hader stars as Barry as he struggles to balance the responsibilities of the life he has with the pursuit of his dreams, hilariously misfiring along the way. The series also stars Henry Winkler, Stephen Root, and Sarah Goldberg. New episodes of Barry premiere on HBO Sundays at 10.30 p.m. starting March 25th. And we're back talking more about Jessica Jones. Now, you know, the Marvel Universe, which is insane and always trying to do new things. And I remember when Jessica Jones premiered and I was like, oh, they're finally doing something new. (laughs) I mean, it really was kind of a rock back on your heels. We've seen kick-ass women before, but they've always been (laughs) like Laura Croft. They're wearing a skin-tight outfit and they've got these really great silhouette. And not that Kristen Ritter, who plays Jessica Jones, doesn't have an excellent silhouette. You wrote a lot about it in the beginning, Meredith. Do you want to talk about, like, sort of when you you interviewed Melissa Rosenberg, who is the uh, creator of Jessica Jones? Do you want to talk a little bit about what, you know, what the process was like and what she was trying to do? Yeah. I mean, I I, I guess I should talk a little specifically about season one, which is, uh, you know, I think people really responded to it in a lot of ways because of its portrayal of, of Jessica Jones, who is this character. She's this kind of very sarcastic, messy character. And she's also a rape survivor. And that's really kind of the story of season one is her, you know, she sort of has PTSD from this abusive relationship that she's gotten out of. And that's kind of the story of season one. And and the way the show got a huge response from people in part because of the way that it handled the assault. It never portrayed it on screen, but saw her surviving and living with it and trying to process it. So it was already coming at it from a very, you know, an interesting perspective that was really different from a lot of what we were seeing on TV. At the same time, you know, there was a big conversation going on about how a number of these prestigious dramas were 
portraying rape, often in ways that seem gratuitous or violating in some cases. So anyway, Melissa Rosenberg, that, that show, in season one, the pilot had been directed by a woman. You know, she sort of established the visual scheme of the show. And I think in season two, Melissa Rosenberg, who is the showrunner and creator and is kind of a really interesting writer in general. Well, at first she decided she was going to do 50%, and then I guess in the course of conversations with folks at Netflix, they decided to go for 100% women directing season two, following in the footsteps of Ava DuVernay at Queen Sugar and a couple other shows that have had all women directors. And then to have to really kind of level the playing field and bring more women into a show that was already very much about the female experience. It's perfect that you mentioned that because one of the directors brought on for the second season of Jessica Jones, Millicent Shelton, actually talked to us the other day about why this new type of superhero and this messy, flawed, but still strong woman that Jessica Jones embodies, uh, including her experience with sexual assault, is so relevant for the Me Too moment. So let's listen to her now. Jessica Jones is a strong, intelligent independent female and she's beautiful I have a 10 year old daughter and I like to say that would be somebody that I wouldn't want her to to have as a role model Um, she's fearless she's fierce she gets the job done and I think that's important for all girls to to embody In, in light of all the sexual harassment cases that are happening right now and a lot of the victims are women and you wonder why people say why why did they wait 20 years why did they let this happen why didn't they say something it's because um in this country, in society, there has been sort of like a a stigma against women who stand up, stand up for what they believe in and are independent and strong. So you're quiet, don't rock the boat, you're going to get hurt if you say anything, you'll hurt yourself more if if you open up. And Jessica is strong. Jessica doesn't care. Jessica is on the side of, this is what I believe is right, I'm going to stand up for what I believe is right, and I'm going to be fearless. Now is the time for young girls to know that that's okay. It's not okay for somebody to sexually abuse you. It's not okay for anyone to harass you. And when that does happen, you don't wait. You have to stand up and you have to say your truth and you have to be fearless. And that's why she's perfect. The star of the show is Kristen Ritter who embodies that as a person. So it was a joy for me to work with her. She embodies everything that is Jessica. It oozes out of her pores and I love it. I mean, as a director, I loved it and embraced it and and wanted to see it even more. So it was fabulous. Melissa Rosenberg, I is she's one of the more she's one of the more fascinating careers I think because at one point she was uh, adapting the Twilight movies and writing for Dexter, which is just like you know you think about that and it's sort of actually it makes kind of a lot of sense when you think about Jessica Jones. It's like there's sort of like the combination of those kinds of sensibilities and also the you know pushing the envelope on all sides. But this was, I mean, it really, I mean, Jessica Jones was the first time where pe- where women felt like they had ownership over a superhero. Um, and then obviously we got Wonder Woman, which I don't think is an accident that Jessica Jones was so well received and then Wonder Woman became like this huge hit. Right. Do Directed you? by I mean, Patty Jenkins. Right. Exactly. making TV between her two movies. <laughs> well, I think she speaks to what the female directors we spoke to endure this like idea of what a woman should be or in their case what a woman should direct and also what they're capable of doing what what powers they really do have and they've had to fight against that there's often this idea that women should only be directing the softer material the lifetime movies and you know a lot of the women we spoke to were like I want to direct 
Vikings. I want to direct Castle Rock. This is, I can do action. I can make it work. Like, I don't just know how to do rom-com stuff. I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a great anecdote that we heard from another one of the Jessica Jones directors, Nessa Hardiman, about her first encounter with these barriers in the industry. I have a really vivid memory of being at college and being asked by my directing lecturer, what kind of films would you like to make? And I said, I'd like to make Batman. And he laughed and he said, wow, you're really in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I was devastated because it hadn't occurred to me that that might be an issue. It had not occurred to me that I was entering into an industry that had any kind of prejudice or any kind of limitation. And to have that articulated so sharply and so directly while I was still very young was a real slap in the teeth. Not that it stopped me and not that it should stop anybody. And it's exciting to know that those things are not going to happen anymore. If I can tell you one more story, um, a US agent um, approached me and said, well, you know, I really like the quality of your work. And I think, yeah, I think we can definitely help you, assist you with your career in the US. And uh, of course, it'll be rom-coms and children's. And I could smell what was coming next. And I, I tried to sort of backtrack going, OK, that's not really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in thrillers. I'm interested in, uh, in dark adventure stories. And he said, yes, but you're a woman. And it was out. It was in the room. So I thought, OK, I have to leave now. Because if that's the kind of person you are and that's the way that you're thinking, we can't work together. That's all changing. That's all gone. I'm delighted to say I won a BAFTA just earlier this year for directing a really dark, crunchy, noir thriller. And it's been so exciting to move on and make another dark, crunchy, noir thriller with proper kick-ass female protagonists. But they're stories for everybody. And what was your experience, Meredith? Did you hear similar accounts from the female directors you spoke with? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the things that, like, nearly to a person, all of the women that I spoke to said was that, you know, I think of myself as a director, not as a woman director. I want to, you know, I want to do different kinds of things. A lot of the women I spoke to kind of came up doing more genre stuff, or, you know, which, which is typically seen as more male. And I think they, they're all kind of wary of being pigeonholed in t- terms of the kind of material they get to work on, and just as, as being seen as kind of a specialty filmmaker, you know. Most of these women are very versatile and can tell any kind of story. It doesn't have to be a rom-com. Or... I think that it's interesting, I, you know, the idea of talking about women directors. Like, nobody wants to say those words. You know, you just want to say directors. And it's like, and we just want to talk about the work. And they just want to talk about the work. But the fact of the matter is the numbers, if when you look at the numbers, it's still kind of ridiculous. So yeah. you do have to continue having these conversations. I was thinking we haven't really talked about Queen Sugar. And it's like if you want to talk about the different kinds of shows that women direct, even though Queen Sugar also has strong female characters and tells uh, impactful emotional stories, the settings of the the look of the show, you know, the sort of structure of the show is, I mean, completely different and very, I remember the first season of Queen Sugar, I'd never seen such a sensual show. It was like where the camera was just really, you know, and, and not over people, over the landscape, over the sky. I mean, it was just this incredibly visual experience, which having just seen Wrinkle in Time is, you know, obviously a hallmark of Ava DuVernay. I mean, she really wants you to feel immersed in a universe. But again, it's like here are these two shows, both of which now have a seasons directed entirely by women, but they're completely different in uh, in tone and focus. 
Oh, and I mean, Queen Sugar is interesting, too, in that it's not just it's directed and largely written by women, but it's it's also looking at geographically a world that we don't get to see a lot. No, it's about a family of black farmers in Louisiana. Right. We know we rarely see rural life depicted on television. So I think in, in so many ways, it's an exceptional show for that reason. So I just want to put this out there. Roseanne and Murphy Brown are coming back. Roseanne Sooner, the Murphy Brown what do we think about that at this point? Do you think that would have happened had we not kind of had this movement over the last couple of years? And how different do you think that's going to look now? And what are the involvement of female directors going to be in that? That's going to be interesting. I don't know anything about like, I don't think that they've started to assemble or announce their team yet. But obviously, Roseanne was a champion. I mean, she was, by all accounts, you know, a handful on set, but she was a champion of certain of of women in all roles in television. So that will be interesting to have her back. And Murphy Brown, although, you know, Diane English is like, you know, the... Pam Fryman's directing the pilot. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I think that that... I think we are seeing, it's almost like you want to bring these beloved characters back in this new light and see what they can do. We have to put a pin in it. I'm really afraid that we do. Although we could talk about this for forever and maybe we will talk about it again when the new shows from the fall come. Although it is not even spring yet, but it'll be right around the corner. Uh, So why don't you guys tell folks where they can reach you? Comments and questions and praise. (laughs) If you want to reach me, Lorraine Ollie, I'm on Twitter at Lorraine Ollie. I am Meredith Blake, and you can reach me on Twitter at Meredith Blake, just like the Parent Trap character. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Yvonne, and you can reach me at Via Really. Just look it up. And I apologize for all the ER tweets. I'm rewatching it. Uh, and I'm Mary McNamara, and you can reach me on Twitter at MaryMacTV. So that's a wrap on the pods. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and be sure to download The Reel on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite listening. Subscribe, rate us, and leave us some feedback. Until next time, from the Los Angeles Times Studios, I'm Mary McNamara. Mary McNamara.